New York City. This is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be discussing ESPN's miniseries OJ Made in America about the rise and fall of football legend turned actor turned acquitted murder suspect turned convicted armed robber, Arenthal James Simpson. We'll also be recommending some other highlights from 30 for 30, ESPN's ongoing series of sports-themed documentaries, of which OJ Made in America is a part. Um, All of those for streaming right now. And I wanted to say, for anyone leery about the prospect of an entirely sports-centric episode, do not be alarmed. I know very little about most professional sports and can add almost nothing to conversations about them. And you better believe that I'm going to devote part of this episode to talking about figure skating. In fact, this is all a ramp up to my ultimate goal of an entirely figure skating themed episode. Are there really enough figure skating movies to support a whole episode? Um, Yes. Ice Castles, obviously. The Ice Castles remake. Ice Princess starring Michelle Trachtenberg. Thin Ice, The Cutting Edge, The Cutting Edge 2 going for the gold. The Cutting Edge 3, Chasing the Dream. (laughs) Blades of Glory, Blades of Courage about a Canadian figure skater named Laurie LaRoche. Okay, okay, I surrender. Damn right you do. Um, But before we get to that, we have opening break. The segment we do in conjunction with Movies On Demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few films that are new on demand. And Matt, you're up this time. What have you got for us, figure skating themed or otherwise? Are there really three cutting edge movies? There are. Wow. I'm I'm left reeling by that revelation. I don't know what to say. I don't know where to go from here. The cutting edge three chasing the dream. Wow. All right. Well, uh, let's let's get to, uh, yeah, these opening break options. We've got some interesting titles here this time. The first one is a uh, new film by this young whippersnapper, this up-and-coming filmmaker. His name is Terrence Malick, and the name of the film is Knight of Cups. It is available now on VOD. I will read you the plot description, although this might be more plot than the actual film contains. Fair warning. Rick is a film screenwriter living in Los Angeles. While he's successful in his career, his life feels empty. Haunted by the death of one brother and the dire circumstances of the other, he finds temporary solace in the Hollywood excess that defines his existence. Women provide a distraction to the daily pain he must endure, and every encounter that comes his way brings him closer to finding his place in the world. And Rick is played by Christian Bale, and the cast also includes Kate Blanchett, Natalie Portman, Brian Dennehy, Wes Bentley, Teresa Palmer, Imogen Poots, and more. I will confess, I was not a huge fan of this movie. Personally, I do like my Malik to have a little bit of plot and character. And with Knight of Cups, I, what you really have is more of this meditation, a tone poem. Some people might describe it as the story. Although I just read you a plot description, some of that isn't even entirely clear from the movie, I, I felt. The story is really as as thin as a thistle blowing in a warm summer breeze. And I just didn't particularly connect with the Christian Bale character. who's very upset about something, and he spends the whole movie moping, essentially, and just kind of wandering from one woman to another. But it doesn't seem like he has that much to be upset about, but... Some people did adore this movie, and it is Terrence Malick, and to, even a, a bad Terrence Malick movie or a, an inferior talent, Terrence Malick movie, I think deserves serious consideration. So I would still encourage people to see this for themselves, wrestle with it themselves. Uh, and VOD is a great place to do that because you're not going to have to you know, pay full price for the ticket. If you've got a good TV, you're still going to get a good visual experience. 
So that is Knight of Cups. Do you have anything to add there, Allison? No, I don't. I don't know that I would say that my issues with it stemmed from there being a lack of plot so yeah. much as the plot that is there is like the most indulgent Hollywood angst story of all yeah. time. Yeah, it's hard to know? care about this guy who's yeah. rich, apparently never has to work, has all of these people coming, gorgeous to women, women, yes, who he kind of looks at for happiness and then discards apparently since they keep going they away, keep vanishing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just I felt like. It's extremely beautiful, uh, and I yes. think it should be said that, like, as with all Malik movies, I, there are moments of just extraordinary grace. Incredible. Um, but yeah, it is. I think about the subject matter. I'm, I really about subject matter. I really wish he weren't devoting right. all of that beauty to. There it's are a some tiresome. Yeah, there are some movies where I where when people ask me about them, I say I didn't like it, and I tell them to stay away. And there are other movies where I say it wasn't for me, but it might be for you. And I think this is one of those cases. People, some people love this movie, and it's certainly one to see for yourself and judge for yourself. That's Night of Cups, available now on VOD. Next up, uh, a movie that I'm very curious about because it's a it's by a director. By the name of John Watts, who made the film Cop Car and is now making, most importantly, the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Homecoming. And this is the movie he made before Cop Car called Clown. It is available now on VOD. And the plot description is, a loving father finds a clown suit for his son's birthday party only to realize that it is not a suit at all. And I do not know any more than that. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know what the suit could be beyond... A clown suit, if it looks like a clown suit, but I've seen pictures of this clown, and it is very terrifying, and so uh, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, I'm interested, and I need to. I still need to see Cop Car as well, um, but I need to bone up on the oeuvre de John Watts before Spider-Man Homecoming comes out, so I'm fully prepared. So this is Clown. I think it came out, it was made a few years ago, but just recently got a release because of the success of Cop Car and because of spider-man coming out as well so yeah that's one to check out as well clown it's available now on vod and finally another sort of divisive recent movie it is called by the sea directed by angelina jolie and the plot description of this one is set in france during the mid-1970s vanessa a former dancer and her husband roland an american writer travel the country together they seem to be growing apart but when they linger in one quiet seaside town they begin to draw close to some of its more vibrant inhabitants such as a local bar cafe keeper and a hotel owner and this was i think it was positioned as an awards contender it sort of went bust in that regard uh, it, i know a lot of people claimed it was a vanity project uh, maybe more than an art film. But again, this is a movie that's sort of like Night of Cups where this movie had some very passionate defenders. And personally, while I didn't get to see this one, this is exactly the sort of movie I'm always most interested in when you have stars, in this case, Angelina Jolie, who is the director as well as one of the stars with Brad Pitt, her husband, when actors sort of inject autobiographical elements into their work and make movies that are fictional but have these sort of nakedly personal elements bubbling underneath. That's one of my favorite things is to try to parse the fiction from the nonfiction in a movie like this. So it's one that I I'm, I'm, was uh, uh, bummed that I missed out on. I, I certainly was upset that, it, you know, I was hoping it would be great because, uh, you know, it uh, immediately intrigued me from the premise and from the, the, the cast there. So I'm, I'm glad I get a chance now to catch up on it. And I hope I, I love it. I hope I can... Look at everybody else who didn't like it and say, you were wrong. You missed the boat on By the Sea, 
which is also available now on VOD. I told him, OJ, you're breaking the laws of God. One day, everybody's going to know everything that you've done, man. If you're a black man in America, you're fighting our war. Who's in a man? of black America and white America. Two totally separate worlds. For us, O.J. was colorless. Every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you pick our main review by voting on one of three options. And this time around, we gave you a set of docs. Terror, uh, Lyric Cabral, and David Felix Sutcliffe's film about an ongoing FBI sting, which is now on Netflix. Ezra Edelman's OJ Made in America on OJ Simpson, uh, which is now available on iTunes and ESPN's app. And Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Jeremy Kuhn and Tim Skusen's movie about the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation uh, that made by teens as an act of love, a scene-by-scene recreation of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there was no competition. OJ Made in America won handily with 60% of the vote. OJ Made in America is directed by Ezra Edelman, who's done multiple films for HBO Sports and who was brought on by ESPN and pitched the project. He actually apparently at first said no, feeling like there was nothing to say about more to say about OJ. And then obviously found a lot more to say about OJ. Um, while this aired on ABC and ESPN as a five-part miniseries, um, each part about feature length, it premiered in its full 464-minute form at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year, and then went on to also play Tribeca in the same way, like a full day of programming, breaks for snacks and meals, uh, like a a, a long commitment. Uh, That is a lot of time, though despite the episodes each having a loose focus, Simpsons' rise to sports stardom, his post-football life, his marriage to Nicole Brown, the trial and its aftermath... It is really a whole story. It describes this arc, the story of O.J. Simpson, a man who was a beloved sports star and then became the center of an entirely different sort of gawking. Um, What's most impressive about O.J. Made in America to me is the degree of context it gives to Simpson and his life. It starts with the history of L.A., in particular its fraught record when it comes to race, uh, the LAPD, Rodney King, and then Indus Simpson's marketability as a black man being portrayed as, and seeming to think of himself as someone who is somehow transcends race, uh, to whom race does not apply. And then the whole blanket of celebrity and wealth and how that serves as a protective bubble. And Matt, we were both teenagers when the trial took place. And what for you were the most surprising or biggest insights that this movie slash miniseries offers? And do you feel it deserves the acclaim that it's gotten? Uh, Second question first, yes. Uh, I I love this film, miniseries, whatever you want to call it. In terms of what surprised me most, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, that general context, which you mentioned, I agree, is some of it you knew, um, some of it you didn't know. And I think you've never seen it, whether you knew a lot of it or not, seeing it all together in one place where you get that full scope of the roles that race and police abuse and brutality and all of the celebrity as you mentioned all these different issues that 
you know, all came together because, you know, as a kid, you didn't – I certainly didn't understand any of that stuff. So to see it all in one place, I think that was the most surprising thing. There are other elements that are very shocking. There are, uh, you know, one of OJ's friends potentially having this affair with his ex-wife and that being the source of tension. And not just his friend, but like his mini his, Right, his men, his protege. Yeah. This guy, this this guy that he – I don't want, I want to spoil who it is if you haven't seen the film yet. But like that another sort of sports star who he kind of groomed as a protege and maybe had – they don't necessarily definitively say it, but it's very strongly hinted that – that uh, Nicole Brown Simpson had this affair with him, and that that could have potentially been another element in in the sort of uh, motive. And then the other thing that I found very uh, arresting, shocking, alarming, fascinating, all of those things was there's a, a segment in the film where they like basically one of the police officers break down their theory of what happened in the crime while showing on screen these very graphic images of the crime scene. And it really, it's so disturbing and troubling, but it also really hits home how this potentially happened, allegedly happened, whatever you want to say, and really reinforced the idea that whoever committed this act, whoever it was, that just the amount of violence and anger and and rage and that it's this wasn't just an you know like a a robbery gone wrong or something like that there had to have been a lot of intense feelings behind this it was crime personal. exactly and so to see it to see the images to hear the the theory of how it happened really hits that home um so yeah those were the things that i really took away as the main sort of surprises uh but even the stuff that I knew before, I I, I still think this uh, film is incredible for putting it all in one place uh, and, and making it so fascinating and so watchable for something that is so long. I mean, it doesn't feel, as you're watching it, like seven and a half hours. I mean, this is one of the most binge-watchable shows I've seen in a while. I mean, I, I, if, I, if I had the time, I would happily sit through the whole thing again in one sitting. It is just that compelling. Yeah, it feels rich it feels like yes. rich with details and with history and with very relevant discussions in a way that i think it earns that runtime certainly but i think it also it shows something that nonfiction, the documentary can do you know in a way that's so impressive is to like weave together journalism right and and to weave together filmmaking and to do the research and to collect these amounts of interviews and these amounts of archival footage and to weave them all together uh, to create this larger tapestry. I was, I was really impressed by this. Yeah. And for me, the biggest, I don't know, surprise is maybe the wrong word, but as someone who really didn't know very, I knew very little about OJ Simpson, un, like in my life until as a sports figure, as a sports figure and as a celebrity, right? Even. As the star think, of the Naked Gun, for right? Example. Like those were the parts that were like new to me in a way that I thought informed so much more uh, about the trial that then came. The right. whole like the specific type of sports celebrity that he achieved, and mm. also and all of the things about like the Hertz ads, and uh, yes. you know about him as like this the kind of like breaking ground as a as a black celebrity being the center of this giant endorsement. Right. And also the details about how 
they would make him the only black person in the ad mm. as a way to soften or make it seem like it's okay. Like well, or he's to not right. Like that he's, he's a, not he's really okay, black. Right. Yes. For, <laughs> for like that they had the old lady, the right. old white lady go, saying, OJ. go OJ, yeah. go. And that that was in a way it was like giving permission to white America to root for this black celebrity or to uh, see him as a figure of endorsement. Right. I Like that was so interesting to me. And also just the way he would talk about race and his relationship mm. with it coming up. This very, this idea of being like, I'm not black. I'm OJ. Yeah, but beyond that, even as if to bring race into your discuss your a discussion of your life and your success is like, I don't know. He seemed to perceive it as a weakness somehow or mm-hmm. something. You know, like he kept saying things about being like, I did all of the right things. You know, I did all that. Like, I don't need to even discuss myself in terms of race because I'm so good and doing you know like have like clean like been so like kept it so perfectly on this path that like uh why would you even talk about that about me and then and so much of in fact like the things that follow are about the idea of when people perceive that you can leave race out of the conversation or not and i think the kind of foolishness of the idea that race is something that you can just divorce Mm. from everything else you know like repeatedly through the the later parts of the of the miniseries, people talk about the race card. Sure. And I think watching this all the way through, what is clear is that you can't just like, race is a part of day-to-day existence. You can't leave it out. The idea that it's something that you can throw on the table as like a Trump is is like a, it's a ridiculous one. I would say also that beyond the sort of, the facts that you learn that you wouldn't have known before, or maybe you did, even beyond any, any of those sort of journalistic aspects there is a poetic element to this there's an element of grand tragedy and it's specifically i think in a lot of this stuff about race and the way that this this man oj simpson saw himself above race and that uh, you know tried to move past it as you're saying and yet what happens he gets accused of this crime and then he Essentially, as you said, plays the race card. His it, legal it team does like the focal point, and, not that, just that, of the most like racially divisive right. like uh, spectacle in America, and in doing so, becomes a folk hero to a community that has been oppressed for so long and is so desperate for some sort of victory, and that he has distanced himself from. Right, this this group that he has done nothing for, essentially, as we see in the movie, how he refused to take part in civil rights movements that were going on all around him while he's at USC, while that area is a hotbed of those sorts of issues, that now suddenly when it's advantageous to him, he turns himself into a a folk hero of the black community, and it certainly helped him during his trial, which I think the film shows you very well. And yet after the fact, what happens afterwards is like all of these stereotypes come bubbling back up. And I just, I just thought that the arc of this man, it, 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 by doing it in this size, this scope, seven and a half hours, you see how it's a tragedy not just of this one man, but of this lar- these larger issues. Right. Well, I mean, there is a way in which also he is. There are times in which he is almost erased from his own trial, in that he becomes a symbol. Right. right. You know, like, and I think, and that's part of what makes what happens afterwards and the ways in which. Uh, he, for a while, it seems like a very active part of the black community. And then, like, all of the support kind of, like, seems to dwindle away. Right. Uh, that, you know, that he was made into, and was made into a symbol and became a symbol for for America also, and for black America specifically, of 
uh, someone who could be a victory after like all of these gross injustices, Correct. These very public gross injustices. Yes. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily on board with OJ forever. Right. You know, <laughs> that I think that like for that moment, like so much of that outpouring of support and love was also to be like, right. you know, we want a chance to strike back against a system that has, you know, just been like, uh, just filled with like, uh, gross unfairness and some, you know, shocking, like to see the Rodney King, I think, like be put directly into that context. Um, I was like very young, like, you know, young enough at the time that I think it was not filtering into me like that chronology and to see it like being put in there and you're like, it seems so naive that the prosecutors didn't understand the extent to which, you know, the way that they take two full episodes to even get to the murder. By the time the murder is committed, you both at least personally, me, I personally had never been more convinced before the murder has happened and they've gone through the evidence that he did it. But also at the same time, it's never been more obvious why he got off, why he was acquitted. It's so clear before anything happens because they spend three hours explaining all of this backstory, the context, that it is so obvious uh, why he was, despite this incredible mountain of evidence, which they then show you where you go, how could anyone be acquitted in this scenario you already know oh this is how it is that there are the there were these issues going on and you even had there are talking heads in the movie who are sort of confronted with their actions now in retrospect where i think that even they have to concede yeah he does look really guilty now but that he served his purpose essentially for their cause and it was a good cause right but then that brings up all these other further issues it's like how what is worth doing for a good cause if it means sort of using this one trial as a as to further this political movement which is important which is uh, you know beneficial to a lot of people but if it does it at the expense of maybe this guy who perhaps did it getting off what is that you know what is the, does the ends justify the means sure but i d- i think that i don't know that oj's win necessarily furthered anything mm. i don't think that it was actually there was anything that calculated about it i think it was very emotional mm. you know and i think that that and i think that that is part of what the prosecutors clearly failed to understand which is that uh, the the kind of like deep emotional response of right. that and the way that it wasn't even necessarily this wasn't like this calculated uh, well you know uh, we're going to push a lot and like like I, I I think it really was like it was a win in a very like visceral sense of just being like well you know we're gonna take this one for our, our team after like having seen so much of this go the other way right i and i I think that the that the doc actually does a a good job about that you know there are two jurors that they they interview um one of whom seems clearly like reacts on like a very kind of like uh emotional level and the other who's like more measured and as much it says at certain points like if they had done this case right he would we would have uh right he would have been guilty right but that they did not they right. did not do an adequate job and sometimes has very good points yeah too she, yeah she's, she's clearly a really, thought a lot yeah. about this she's a very good interview yeah i will say the other thing that i the something that genuinely came as a surprise and it is i think the one thing that i wish that the doc had dug into a little more uh, when they talk about the nicole brown the history of, of abuse, domestic abuse of domestic violence yeah. in their relationship yeah and even at one point one of the jurors is basically says basically like i don't have any sympathy for a woman who doesn't get herself out of those relationships yeah. and that moment is like shocking. a shocking thing to say but also i think representative of a lot of the attitude that i think was 
and including, I think Mark Furman says something about that when he goes to the house and he's like, she's not going to file charges. And he's like, well, all right. Like, I don't know why you're letting yourself get treated this right. way. Where you're like, there's this almost like the sense that, well, you asked for this. Like, it's your fault for not extricating yourself from this. Yeah. Um, that I, I, I think is like so disturbing to me and something that I do, I do think is like, is raised. It is obviously raised, but like is not they do not dig into that enough. Yeah. Uh, this, this feeling that like in this trial that then becomes this like larger battle about race and like the LAPD and all of this history, uh, this was a woman who had gotten, you know, knocked around for a long time and then was murdered and that she is becomes like so relatively incidental to these, these kind of grander issues uh, I, and I don't think that the doc spends as much time addressing that as maybe it could. I, I agree. And I think there could be more about her in general, I think, about Nicole and also Ron Goldman. I mean, is uh, the, yeah, the he victims. Is, he's, he's not much of a figure in it. No. His parents are very His prominent. His father is another interview subject that um, has some very powerful moments. And in general, there are some amazing characters in this film beyond just O.J. Simpson and like the sort of the main players like O.J.'s agent who stood by him for a very yeah. long time, but now has sort of finally broken with him. And, and also, and says, at says one some point, shocking basically things. Basically says, he's like, I thought you did it. I always thought you did it. Back yeah. even when he was still aligned with him and was friends with him, was like, I always thought you did it. A, a, a fascinating character. Um, the, 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 the police officer, Ship, who was sort of another close associate who kind of broke with him, has some amazing stories. And, and, Ron Goldman's father, also an incredible character. It's just like it's so rich with these supporting characters. Yeah. Again, makes Peter it Peter Himes, the filmmaker. Peter Himes, the filmmaker, has some great <laughs> yes. interviews. Where, where I mean, Marsha Clark is a great interview throughout the film as well. You just, you know, again, the, the idea of it being this sort of grand Shakespearean tragedy. You have all these incredible figures who seem like they could be the subject of their own film. And I, I do agree that one of the even at seven and a half hours, there's more they could have done. And I think it is fascinating and alarming the way that this history of domestic abuse instead of it becoming used against oj simpson where you would think it should be because it shows a pattern of and a history of abuse and and like a classic one a right. classic one that's right. like that is jealousy like precursor, and, right possessiveness yeah the showing up at like events that you'd be at afterwards. i didn't know any of the stuff about the yeah. other boyfriend where he was like watching them all night potentially at least that's what the boyfriend yeah. thinks yeah i think that it, it's such like a like a classic setup for for escalating violence yes. and for that kind of yeah but as you say the fact that instead of that being sort of used and held against OJ seems to be held against her at least for example by that juror is so troubling and yes there could have been more there and i'm sure if we sat here we could probably think of a few other things like i said like i felt like ron goldman right i wanted to know more about that about him about that guy and about her about nicole as well um, and there's a few other things, and, and maybe as before we wrap up, another question I had is, obviously, O.J. himself, not interviewed for the film, I think they tried to speak to him. and He is in jail for he is in a 33-year sentence, yeah. right? Like, which is gigantic yes as they as they say uh, like as part of the the documentary like is an outsized really sentence for what for for the crime which they cover in depth as well and that's another thing that i didn't know a lot about i knew the the broad outlines but 
that's a strange and fascinating incident as well. The whole last chapter is so tremendous sad. and so sad. And that's another thing, too, I think, to the film's credit is, again, I had never felt more convinced of this man's guilt. But at the same time, I felt so kind of sad for him at the end in that last chapter uh, and all the things uh, you just watch his life kind of going down and down. And, and again, you're, you've already seen this horrible stuff that he's potentially done. And yet I still found myself sort of feeling sad for him, which I, and I didn't even feel comfortable. I was like sort of taken aback and kind of troubled by my own reaction. But, but I kind of give the movie credit for that, for, uh, allowing him to sort to, to, to be a character and to be a person and to see all these sides of him. But what, getting back to what I was going to say is, do you feel like the movie missed him? Would it have been a stronger movie if he had sat down for an interview with them or does the movie not need him? No, I actually, I think it's much better for not having him. Mm. I think because, because so much of it is also about the perception of him from the outside, the continually changing perception of him, you know, it is about how he wanted, it's about also how he wanted to portray himself, right? That he, the image that he wanted for himself. And I think, I, I, I mean, I think that that is actually part of the point. I, I remember there's one part where I think it's um, Goldman's father who says something about how he was he would like smile when he knew the cameras were on and then turn yes. it off and, and a- attached all of this meaning to that, that he was so calculating and all of that. And yet at the same time, you're like, well... Of course, like he was trying to play to the camera. This was he was trying to win the trial, sure. you know, like that. That that he's almost this, the kind of absence of his, him defending himself, his personal testimony. I think like works because, it he he was he is the focal point, and yet at the same time, all of these things are being projected on him. Mm. I think that I mean I don't know maybe OJ would have given an incredible interview, right. but I think it is actually better, because also I think it makes him into this untrustworthy narrator at the end with like the things he's going through and the Mm. ways he portrays it. I think that it is better this way. How about you? I mean, I I pretty much agree with you. I would just put it this way is that, you know, better or worse is kind of hard to know, but I think it fits the overall theme of the movie, as you said, in the fact that OJ is sort of this symbol, this icon, this folk hero, and that by not having him speak for himself, you it's almost like Rashomon. You get to see all the how these different people see him and how they each use him for whatever their purposes are. And so not having him speak kind of fits that aspect of the movie whereas if he was able to sit there and say well i didn't think this and i didn't think that or i did this or i didn't do that it may may have weakened that component of the movie which is so strong so while i i i would be sort of fascinated to know what that version of the movie looks like i don't necessarily feel like the movie is missing him or is weakened by his absence because i think Ezra Edelman, the guy who made the movie, I think very uh, cannily sort of structured it in a way where his absence sort of fits because it doesn't seem like anybody really knew this guy or that they knew an aspect of him, but that he was so complex or guarded or just or putting on this front that the real OJ was was and probably forever will be a mystery. No matter how long your documentary about him is. I agree. Well, that is OJ Made in America. You can find it on iTunes or on the ESPN app. And as you've heard, we both highly recommend it. It is pretty magnificent.
Okay, so cue shots we're doing 30 for 30, the ongoing ESPN series of uh, you know, anthology documentaries. I, I did want to say, because actually I was talking to one person who didn't realize the, the title 30 for 30 originates f- with the sort of the very beginning of the project was, well, it, it's going to be the 30th anniversary of ESPN. I think this is all the way back in like 2009. That's how long yeah. ago they they started this. And they to commemorate the anniversary, they commissioned 30 documentaries. So, And they, each one for, for, for that first batch was specifically about an event from ESPN's first 30 years. It couldn't take place in 1960 or, or, or something like that. It had to be between 79, I guess, and, and, and 2009, hence the title 30 for 30. Now, at this point, there's almost 100 of these. So the title has almost no meaning. It's kind of like KFC or something. They've divorced it from its original meaning but i think at this point the brand of 30 for 30 is so strong uh, that there was no you know what were they they were going to change it and get rid of that just throw it away i don't think that would have made sense so that's why it's 30 for 30 in case you did not know that and a a lot of these are available especially on netflix has dozens of them yeah both of mine are on netflix both of mine are on netflix as well so if you if you like sports docs you haven't seen these they're all available on Netflix. There's a lot more where these came from as well. So, Allison, I think you're going to go first because yours sort of connects to O.J. Made in America. It does. My first pick is June 17th, 1994, which does serve as a kind of companion piece to O.J. It is about the day that O.J. Simpson was meant to turn himself into the police, and instead he didn't show up. And what took place was the infamous white Bronco chase down the freeway, the slow, slow speed chase, uh, Simpson with a gun to his head. Uh, this movie is directed by Brett Morgan, who directed Chicago 10 and Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, and Kid Stays in the Picture. Uh, it was also a listener wreck a few months ago from Cyrus. Wanted to give a shout out to that. Um, and I picked this one not just because of the OJ connection, but because the 30 for 30 docs as a whole, they have a lot of variety in terms of subject matter. They're not always known for being the most formally inventive. No. Nope. But this is one that is genuinely, I think engaging in terms of its its format yeah no interviews no narration it just flips between various significant sports events during the day it was a day with a lot going on uh arnold palmer the legendary golfer was playing his last round of golf at the u.s open as a pro uh, or as like a a non-senior pro the world cup was kicking off in chicago with bill clinton announcing how soccer unites the world <laughs> uh the new york rangers had just won the stanley cup and were celebrating with a parade in new york it was an nba finals game between the rockets and the knicks ken griffey jr managed to tie babe ruth's record for the most home runs before july and then of course over the course of the day the oj coverage slowly devours all of this and seeps into all of it uh, and Morgan sometimes literally uses a device that recalls channel flipping. Yes. Uh, you know, it goes between sometimes unrelated channels. There's a uh, tracking on the screen. Mm-hmm. It it also incorporates raw feeds when people aren't live on air but are being recorded. So you hear from people on helicopters, like trying to track down the Bronco, from Bob Costas talking with his producers about how they're going to handle the news while covering this very important basketball game. 
Uh, and the film, I mean, allows there to be kind of connections, uh, not like small coincidental ones. One person announces at a certain point that the way that all of these people are like lining up to see OJ pass by, like on the overpasses and along the side of the road, it looks like a parade. Right. And from there, and then the you film cut to cuts to like a boy in the parade. Yeah. Uh, like talk in the Rangers parade, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't think. That there is an explicit condemnation in this film, but I do think there is a profound ambivalence uh, that that there are ways in which spectacle is spectacle, no matter what sort, you know, mm-hmm. and that we watch people succeed at these great athletic achievements or fail with equal raptness. That people are when the the end, which has a, a really great use of the Talking Head song "Heaven." has all of these people, like news media, but also just members of the public, like outside the house, pushing and shoving and trying to see what's going on. Uh, and their their engagement and their like kind of, their hunger to be there and see things is equal to, I think, the fans who are there, like showing off their Rangers tattoo at the parade and to the people cheering in the stands. There is no particular line to be drawn you know Mm -hmm. it is all just people watching watching the spectacle and i think that there is a great and very sad poetry to that that the film captures really well in less than an hour it's not a longer it's not a longer film um it also includes and i don't think this is in oj made for america the like (laughs) like too good to be true detail that after in the uh, press conference after oj made it home after the the bronco chase that he settled in and he drank a glass of orange juice and the people in the press conference cannot help but laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is really, I think, a, a impressive achievement. And in, in a group of films that I think are, are made to be informative, first and foremost, that it, it manages to capture this uh, meditation on the strange forces of this one day and also the forces of just like watching and spectacle Uh, so that is june 17th 1994 it is streaming on netflix yeah that's definitely as you said uh, there's some great 30 for 30s but a lot of them they they sort of feel of a piece and i mean even though it's an anthology i guess that makes sense you know that they would feel kind of aesthetically kind of similar but that is really one of the few that stands out and doesn't have any talking heads and and is just it, it almost feels like a like an experimental film or an art yeah, film. Yeah, like it would play on a gallery wall. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, that's a great pick. My first pick uh, was from that first batch of Thirty for Thirties, like June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four, is, and I it's taken on new resi- resonance. I think in recent months, it's called Small Potatoes: Colon Who Killed the USFL by director Mike Tolan, and the USFL was an attempt. To create a another professional football league, uh, unlike the NFL, that would play in the spring. And it was formed in 1983. And while it got off to a pretty promising start, it folded by 1985. And one reason why it folded so quickly is that this one very ambitious team owner pushed the USFL to go from playing in the spring when they didn't have the NFL to compete directly with to playing in the fall when they would have to go up against the NFL. And the name of that owner is Donald Trump. He purchased (laughs) the New Jersey Generals. Uh, In the film, basically, they make it seem like he kind of did it as a status symbol. And then, again, according to the film, essentially drove the franchise and the entire league right into the ground. And 
Mike Tolan was the guy who made this movie and, and the right guy to make it because he was actually present for a lot of this. He worked for the USFL in the early 80s. He basically worked for their equivalent of NFL films, shooting stuff, putting together packages and videos. So he had access to the footage of the league, and he was able to get a lot of interviews with the major players in the league, both players in the sense of the players and also the, the executives and, and things like that. And he also convinced Donald Trump himself to sit down for an interview, somewhat reluctantly it seems, based on the, the footage in the film, to weigh in on what went wrong in his mind. And we see the same interview played both in the beginning and the end of the film. And at the end of the interview, Trump basically throws his hands up and says, well, you know, it happened. But even if it had stuck around, the USFL would be small potatoes, which is where the title of the film comes from. So when this doc came out in 2009, it was an interesting story. I think the USFL is, a, you know, it's a sort of a a fascinating chapter of sports history that's largely forgotten or unknown and and that alone makes it it makes it interesting but now 7 years later it is this fascinating window into the mindset of this guy who is now a presidential candidate who talked if not outright bullied his way into the league and then brought it down essentially uh Burt Reynolds the actor also owned a USFL franchise, the Tampa Bay Bandits, named after Smokey and the Bandit. And he says in the film that what Trump really wanted was to own an NFL franchise. And when that didn't work, he bought into the USFL. And essentially his his reasoning to, to in, in Burt's mind to move the league to this fall was to kind of prove his point, get revenge, destroy the NFL, fuel – and essentially fuel his ego, you know, for having them – scolded and cast him aside out of character (laughs) right and that's the stuff that's so fascinating and actually the usfl not to spoil everything in the movie but they sued the nfl um for antitrust as like saying they're a monopoly they hold this monopoly and they're uh destroying competition and the usfl won the jury found for the usfl but basically because trump had already and and the league in general. I'm not going to blame Trump entirely, but that they had basically shut down by this point. So there was nothing, there was no damages to award. So the league was awarded, they won, but they were awarded $3.76 <laughs> in damages. So uh, at, at one point in the film, we see the actual check from the NFL handed over to Trump himself Ooh. to look at. And you can see how unhappy he is to be confronted with what is clearly a failure from his life and how that is so anathema to his image that he, had, even in 2009, had built. And I think that that is what makes this one so interesting now, even more interesting than when it came out. So something worth watching on Netflix. It is available on Netflix. It's Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL? All right. Well, for my second pick, I promise figure skating. Oh, I'm here we go. Figure skating. Okay. You know, something that is commonly said about the 30 for 30 films is that they're not just sports documentaries. You know, they use sports as a jumping off point for bigger things or for telling stories that are not the ones you expect. And I think that is sometimes true. I think that OJ Made in America is the best possible version Absolutely. of that. Uh, and I think that there are ones that have introduce me to context and background and history uh, that I had no idea about. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest. Some of them are just so nerdily specific about some particular, they are made. There are some that are very clearly made for sports fans of a particular, a particular aspect of sports. Um, 
that uh, people who are already on board with the subject matter to begin with. And so I wanted to talk about a movie that is about a sport that I am actually interested in. That movie is 2014's The Price of Gold, which is about Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan and the lead up to and including the 1994 Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer. Uh, that would be uh, the year that Kerrigan was attacked by a, what turned out to be a man hired by Harding's uh, then husband or ex-husband. I believe they had separated and then got back together, Jeff Galuli, and her bodyguard, Sean Eckert, in an attempt to make Kerrigan unable to compete. As you may or may not recall, yes. uh, they ruled that Kerrigan, even though Kerrigan couldn't skate in the in the qualifiers, she was made one of the two, two skaters that they sent up, um, and the other one was Harding. And uh, Kerrigan came in. Right. If you wrote this, no one would believe it. Story, and that's I think what shines through in this is that it is such a good story and was such a big moment for figure skating in the national spotlight, and a kind of like an uncomfortable moment for figure skating in the national spotlight because the tradition of figure skating is that it is this impeccable, classy, elegant, elegant, it's dancing on ice. Yeah. And that is actually one of the things that this film, which is directed by uh, Nanette Bernstein, uh, represents Nanette Bernstein, who did uh, American Teen and Going the Distance, and who actually co-directed The Kids Days in the Picture. I was wondering if you were going to say, mention this connection between your two choices. first Q Shots pick. (laughs) Um, And I think what is... Something that should be noted about this film is that in making it, Bernstein was not able to get an interview with Nancy Kerrigan because Nancy Kerrigan had promised an exclusive to NBC for their competing documentary, Nancy and Tanya, uh, because she had signed a deal to be a skating analyst for the network for the Sochi Olympics. Right. Um, you can watch Nancy and Tanya at NBCSports.com. It is also streaming. It's about an hour. It is much more of a television special than it is, I would say, like a documentary in yeah. the sense of a film. Uh, but I do recommend you watch it because they work incredibly well together as mm-hmm. a pair. One, uh, The Price of Gold kind of tilts towards Harding's perspective. Mm-hmm. And the other tilts towards Kerrigan's. Uh, Harding does participate in Nancy and Tanya. But it is also about their perceptions of one another and how that those perceptions fit into figure skating and the idea of what the ideal female figure skater looked like. Right. Because these are both working class women. You know, Kerrigan was the one who figured out how to, and her team figured out how to fit into the ice princess image, right? She was very classy. She was very, her figure skating was all about these like long, elegant lines, Vera Wang outfits. Um, She was, you know, very shy. And in some ways that I think kind of hurt her a bit because she was uncomfortable interacting with the press and with the crowd, was often caught saying like kind of snippy things when her mic was live. But uh, Kerrigan was still obviously fit into the image of what an artistic, as I said, they got the artistic points, you know. Whereas Tanya Harding was this, uh, growing up in a trailer from a broken home, uh, you know, was uh, frizzy haired and was not, was uh, built the same way and was more athletic and was more into jumps. She was the first one to land a triple axel in competition, mm-hmm. uh, women to land a triple axel in competition. And I, I, I think that. I think that idea and also both of these women and how they perceive each other when they both came from like fairly similar places uh, is, is something that makes these movies work in conjunction so well, Um, particularly. And I don't think that Burstein's movie suffers in any way from not having Kerrigan because Tanya Harding is the fascinating figure and still has a huge ship on her shoulder and has like gone on to like, 
you know, she was boxing for a while. Yeah. She was not, she, and she, in a way that I think really turned off people, though I think it, for, for totally understandable reasons on her part, she is the one who really wanted to win because there was a lot of money in winning. Yeah. And she didn't have any money and was making her own costumes, you know, but that was like very gauche to talk about. Mm-hmm. Figure skating is a really expensive sport to compete in, but no one's supposed to talk about, you know, the money aspect. And um, she hasn't, you know, she hasn't gone on to be wealthy, whereas Kerrigan has like, you know, went on to do like pro skating and, and endorsements and, and Harding is so bitter um, even though her life has become like stabilized and she's married and she has a kid, uh, her interviews are the ones that you want to watch because she is not apologetic and she does not seem to have a great awareness of just how much this is like eaten away at her. And uh, in both movies, her interviews are certainly the more interesting, but in Price of Gold, I think it really digs into the psychology of Tanya Harding as this tragic hero slash villain. I mean, she is like a mini, less murderous OJ in that I way. Was, I was, if you didn't say it, I was going to say yeah. it. Is that, and then I think the film is sort of like a mini version of the OJ. Agreed, it's film about in that it gives, and yeah, and it gives press. you context. And because you know, from the outside, again, she just seemed like this villain, and you didn't understand why she would do this beyond jealousy yep. and and just you know trying to cheat to win essentially. And I remember rooting viciously against her oh, see i always liked her because nancy kerrigan was boring yeah know? but uh, she was but, uh, but but she was classy. she was she, she was, was the one. victim yeah. and 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 tanya harding in my yeah. mind was the attacker the aggressor right, the, right. the criminal whatever you want to call it and 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 it, the the film makes you see her in a just the same way it does with oj it really makes you see her in a different light right and it does it leaves the question open of how much she knew ahead of time because she she was guilty. She admitted to guilt about learning about it after the fact right. and not, and not... Uh, like turning them in yes. right away. And for that, she was banned from skating forever. Right. Um, or at least professional skating, <laughs> figure skating. She could still skate on the ice somewhere. No one would come out and tackle her if she like straps on skates. <laughs> but, good, good clarification. Yes. But uh, I, I, you know, I do think that it almost it doesn't matter whether she knew or not because it yeah. it ate her life away mm-hmm. and uh, she is this great figure right. in the movie which is really well done that is the price of gold it is streaming on netflix that's another it's another really really good 30 for 30 i recommend both of your picks uh 100% entirely so for my next pick i had already seen small potatoes when it first came out so i wanted to at, at least see one 30 for 30 that i had never watched before because there's so many of them and so the one i decided to watch for my second pick is called no mas directed by Eric Drath. This is a boxing documentary, and I think we've talked about this on bef- on the podcast before, how boxing, certainly not one of my favorite sports to watch, but might be my favorite sport to use as the subject of a movie. The drama, the stakes, the intensity, the sort of the personality of the boxers. Image like, is also a huge part of it. Yes. Yeah. It just, it's just the, it's like the perfect sport for film, uh, for both fiction and nonfiction. And so Nomas is about one boxing match, but it's in a larger sense, it's about a rivalry between two very different boxers, Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran. And in a larger sense, it's more about what it means to be a champion and what it takes to be a champion and sort of the heart that we always think about in terms of boxing. And that's boxing is so much about, you know, the will to win and your heart. 
um, even more than it is about being a great puncher or a great fighter. Um, you have Sugar Ray Leonard, who was, you know, sort of the at least as the film argues, was kind of the next Muhammad Ali in terms of celebrity, just sort of like the most famous boxer, the most beloved boxer in the world at the time in in 1980. He's the welterweight champion, and he's challenged by Duran, whose nickname was the man with the hands of stone because he hit people so hard. And they had this famously intense fight, which Duran won in a split decision, but then they had a rematch. And the, the, the film is mostly about the rematch because it's in that fight that Roberto Duran, one of the greatest fighters of all time, according to some of the talking heads in the film, did something that he never did in another fight and which has rarely happened in major fights and which the talking heads, the journalists in the film basically have spent the last 30 years trying to understand. He quit in the middle of the match. He wasn't knocked down. The, the ref didn't you know, stop the fight on his behalf. He said no moss, threw up his hands, and walked away from Sugar Ray Leonard. And so that's really what the film is about. And it has interviews with both Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran in the present. And I think the film does kind of – it answers some of these questions about why Duran quit, but not all of them. And I think in an ideal world, the filmmakers would have wanted – Roberto Duran to be more forthcoming. They set up this whole thing where Sugar Ray Leonard flies to Panama, where Duran's from, and they meet. Uh, they sort of set up this shoot in the middle of a boxing ring, and they kind of talk about the incident, their relationship, and what they each think happened. And I think they hoped that Duran would be more open about his decisions. And what you see in the film is maybe not that. But in a way, it suits the movie, much in the way that not having O.J. on camera and O.J. Made in America kind of works. I think the sort of – the way that he tries to – Duran tries to kind of avoid the, the, the thorny subject at the center of it, it suits the movie. And, and in some ways, it suits 30 for 30 in general in the way that these are – as you said, some of these are about sort of singular moments in sports, but some of them are also about – larger issues and this one is about sort of again like the makeup of a champion and i feel like that's something that's you know it when you see it but it's hard to explain like this is not a riddle that can be solved or understood and that's part of what we love about sports too is the is these moments that are inexplicable you know again the idea that something is so crazy that if you wrote it in fiction you wouldn't believe it like the fact that one of the toughest fighters in history just quit in the middle of, of a match and to this day won't really fully explain why he did it. I mean, that is just a, a great moment that, you know, it's as good as a, any mystery in like a Christopher Nolan movie. You can have your, a, a, you know, you can have your theory and the movie presents a ton of different theories, but in the end it's a, it's like, it's something we'll never fully know. And I kind of like that about the movie is that it allows the, the ambiguity to kind of continue, the the mystery to continue. Um, I should say there is a scripted film on this topic. Oh, really? Uh, starring Edgar Ramirez and Robert De Niro as oh, his trainer. Right. It was at Cannes. That's right. But the press screening was canceled. That's it's Weinstein right. Company owns it. And, I mean, it seems like an oscar movie, except that I don't know anyone who really saw it. I'm sure some right. people did, and it was reviewed. Is it, is that, is it called Hands of Stone? Hands of Stone. Right, to, right yeah. after, after Duran's uh, uh, nickname there. Yeah. And so that may or may not be coming out this year, hmm. but it is about this boxer. Interesting. Well, in the meantime, while you're waiting for that, No Mas, which is very good, is available on Netflix.
Okay, let's talk about some new movies. Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. And usually this is one of my favorite parts of the show, Allison, because we get to talk about new movies. We know we don't have to restrict ourselves to streaming. Uh, but, man. <laughs> this summer is This summer. Grim. Yeah, I have a whole article up on ScreenCrush.com you may want to read about. But I basically ask, is this the worst summer for movies ever, or at least in the last... Right. And that's essentially what the question I I found was, is that if we look at every year, based on the scores on Rotten Tomatoes, generally every year is about the same in terms of wide releases. But in terms of the biggest of the big, movies over $100 million in budget, this is the worst year of the last decade except for one. And we still have time to go. So it's possible that this really could be the worst year for tentpole releases in a decade, depending on how July and August shake out, if Ghostbusters is a bomb, if Jason Bourne is a bomb, if Suicide Squad is a bomb, we could be we could actually have like mathematically the worst uh blockbuster summer season in a long time. Well I think what's weirder than just how bad or just not even bad as much as like unwanted a lot of these movies i felt like mm-hmm. it's just that we've just had you know we're we're recording this uh on fourth of july weekend just like a big the biggest traditionally that's right summer weekend that's that and the movies that were released are the bfg, BFG which we've talked about and yeah. which is like a, a kind of lesser spielberg Snoozy, movie kind of quiet kids movie uh, the Purge election year, which is like a low budget movie, pretty much. It's yeah. under ten million dollars. It's a ten million dollar movie, you know. That is like is is not your like tentpole. No. And then Tarzan, which is not good. No. The Legend of Tarzan. The Legend of Tarzan. This is another of the I would say horrible, uh, huge movies. I think this movie cost like. Uh, I think $180 million or something like that. I'll double check while we're talking, but it's well over $100 million spent on a Tarzan movie with not uh, not huge stars either. There's no megastar to anchor this thing either. Beyond like not having a big star, you just, when you watch it, you're like, no one seems to be into this. No. No one participating seems to have any actual sense of why this and why they should make another Tarzan movie. Why anyone would want to watch that. No. Like it is, it is such a limp movie. That looks incredibly expensive. It it does look beautiful and which is like lavish. It's like so settings, beautiful. So like like yeah. yeah, the these sweeping shots of the of Africa and like the the, the establishing shots of this movie are fantastic. Sure. If any of the, the characters, money can buy. if any of the characters were half as interesting, and we should say in terms of beauty, Alexander Skarsgård, who plays oh, Tarzan, yeah. is Mwah. is immaculate. <laughs> He's his, got his his upper body is incredible there's at least six good things about this movie (laughs) and they are all on alexander scars abdomen i will say that uh he is in incredible shape and i actually felt like his performance as tarzan while the movie gives him absolutely nothing interesting to do his physicality as the character was really interesting yeah the way he walks and moves and even just stands and you you see a guy who was raised to behave like an ape that is how he kind of carries himself, the way he kind of – even just the way he holds his hands at his sides. Really interesting. But everything else about him is so boring. It's so boring, and he can't – like I – mean, I mean, this is a character who is given very few lines for, like – a lot of the movie, most of the movie, he does not talk a lot. No, he mostly just stands and, and looks stares. sad. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like you would need someone with almost inhuman charisma 
to seem interesting right. in that context. And Alexander Skarsgård is not that person. No, he, he they tries. Went, they went for the guy with inhuman physicality right. and, and, and abs. Yes. Not the guy with the best personality. Yeah. And then also, this whole movie, you feel like it's almost warring against the datedness of yes. the intellectual property it is trying to update. Yes. It makes Tarzan uh, not just, you know basically a new superhero who has all these uh, incredible Clearly physical designed to make talk, him yeah, a superhero. And can talk to the animals and all of that. But also he's like battling colonialism. Yes. He like is intent towards the end of chasing the Belgians out of the Congo. Yes. In, in a, like in defiance of history. Yes. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> history cha- turned out a little differently than the movie did. Which you would know if you've ever listened to We Didn't Start the Fire, because Belgians in the Congo is one of the lines in the movie, and the movie pretends like Tarzan solved solved that problem, solved colonialism. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's I, I think like for me the most bewildering part about it is just how little how little anyone seems engaged in it. You know, like yeah. they're all just kind of like well we're doing the best we can, right? But then you're like, why even make this? Like who cared about I this really enough don't to greenlight it? That's the thing. It's so baffling. Why make a Tarzan movie that is so Tarzan at this day and is so fraught in terms of the racial politics, the gender politics? Right, you have uh, and uh, Margot Robbie is playing Jane, Jane, and at what and and at one point like is told to scream to like call for cause, and she's right. like, like a damsel, right? And you're like, but you've just spent the rest of the movie chained right. up to be she rescued. She insists she's not a damsel in distress, and yet she is, and and the whole movie is about Tarzan trying to rescue her. Yeah. So it it. it but that in general is very much in fitting with the rest of the movie, right. which is like we are. This is a progressive Tarzan. This is an evolved Tarzan. It's but the it's wokest th- Tarzan of all time. <laughs> yeah. But but at the same time, it's like he's the white savior who has to rescue Africa. Sure, and like very few of like the African tribes members are distinguished in any way. Right. Yeah, right. And two, they mostly exist them, to be really. really mean or to be like, go Tarzan, go. Right. And, and yeah, I don't like why do this. Also, Alexander Skarsgård punches a gorilla. And he has that weird scene where he like nuzzles, nuzzles a lion. Yeah, yeah. And also Christoph Waltz and, um, and Samuel Sam Jackson, Jackson are basically playing themselves in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like neither well, Christoph of them. Waltz in particular. I am. I, I, I know you're such I'm a fan. I'm so sick of Christoph Waltz. I know. He has to do something else. He has to find something else to do besides the same character. He literally played. It almost looks like he's playing one of the, the Tarantino characters. Samuel L. Jackson as well. I mean, True. it feels like they just showed. They put him there and they're just like, just riff. Just do your thing. Did this surprise you at all that the Samuel Jackson character, he essentially plays Tarzan's sidekick in the movie. Yes. He is the reason that Tarzan goes back to Africa, and he is this kind of— Comic relief, basically. Uh, most of the time. Yeah. He gives this one speech, though, about his dark past, this past that he's not proud of, which is actually one of the best moments in the movie. Did you know that that character is based on a real historical figure? Yes, I did, but only because I looked it up. Right. I couldn't believe that. He's, he's also so incidental to the larger story. Right. He's Again, he's just there to sort of root on Tarzan, and I feel like to make it okay for all of us to root on Tarzan— and I was just like, I can't believe after you find out this guy had an incredible real life. It's like, forget Tarzan. Make a movie about this guy. Yeah. Well, that is Tarzan. Yeah. It's now in theaters. Uh, Worst summer ever. Yeah. I don't think we need to talk about anything else. No. Let's move on. Let's to move behind on. Behind Eight Ball. Yeah. Well, this is uh, the segment, as you all probably know by now, where we wrap up the show with some new recommendations for stuff that's just arrived on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. That's our email address. And then we give you one film chosen blindly by number from our... My list. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. You really just embrace it. Just feel it. It's been a while. Yeah. 
Uh, oh. No resistance. I don't want to. I don't want to hog that. You should be able to do it sometimes too. Uh, Allison, who's going first this time? Why don't you go first? Okay. All right. Give me three new releases. All right. First up, if you didn't get enough sports-related content on this episode already, I recommend Cinderella Man, one of my favorite Ron Howard movies. Russell Crowe stars as a real-life boxing champ, James J. Braddock, in this story that, well, if it had been made in that window for Thirty for Thirties, it could easily have been a documentary in that in that group. Maybe if they change it someday to like Seventy for Seventy or something like that, they can go back in time to this story of the improbable upset of a supposedly unbeatable champion. I haven't seen this movie since it came out, but I really liked it when it did come out. I thought Russell Crowe gave a really great performance. I'm curious to see how well it holds up. That is Cinderella Man. It's available on Netflix. Next up, also on Netflix, one of my all-time favorite movies that, at least according to my Google searches, I have never recommended on the podcast before. It seems hard to believe, but I couldn't find a mention of it in our archives. It is The Sting from 1973, directed by George Roy Hill. This is basically a spiritual sequel to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in that it reunites Paul Newman and Robert Redford in another period buddy comedy. This time it's a a con man movie about Redford's character, Johnny Hooker, trying to get revenge on this big time gangster who's played in a fantastic performance by Robert Shaw for the murder of his partner. And to do so, he recruits this other retired con man, Henry Gondorf, played by Paul Newman, to teach him how to be a, a real grifter. And this was a Best Picture winner in 1974. It has great music by Marvin Hamblish, uh, adapting the classic ragtime music by Scott Joplin. Redford and Newman are great together. Robert Shaw practically steals the movie from them anyway. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's The Sting. It's on Netflix. Finally, as part of what I consider an ongoing public service to tell the world anytime a new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie appears online, it is my duty, nay, my honor and privilege to announce that Terminator Genesis is now streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime. This was the latest attempt to restart the Terminator franchise by basically splintering off from the original events of Terminator and T2 and creating this new altered timeline. On that front, it was admittedly unsuccessful. There will almost definitely never be a sequel to this movie, but I did enjoy it a lot more than Terminator Salvation, which did not have Arnold I would say I enjoyed it about as much as Rise of the Machines. I had a lot of fun seeing Schwarzenegger back in this role. He's the best part of the movie, which, okay, at times is a little bit of a mess. It does leave a few lingering questions we'll never get answers for because there won't be a sequel, and that always drives me crazy as much as anybody else. But still, Arnold as the Terminator, highest possible rating, 3,000 stars. Two listener recommendations. All right. First, we have one from AJ in Lakemore, Illinois. And AJ has a uh, a 30 for 30 recommendation for us. He says, having mentioned 30 for 30 on your last episode, please allow me to recommend Slaying the Badger. While not a fan of the sport, I found this a riveting example of Greg LeMond and team cycling politics at a time just before the sport changed irrevocably, thanks to Lance Armstrong and various doping scandals. Other offbeat winners are Small Potatoes, Trump Ruins the USFL, which Mm. I mentioned, and Big Shot, an attempted purchase of the New York Islanders. Love the show. Appreciate your time and efforts. That's from AJ in Lakemore, Illinois. Slaying the Badger, I haven't seen. It does sound really interesting. Cycling is another sport that's so fascinating and so ripe for documentaries because of all the doping and all of the strange things going on. Like the team. And the politics, the the team dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't seen that one, and I really need to check that one out. And I would also mention that Big Shot, I have seen, the one about the honors, is a great 30 for 30. That almost was one of my picks. 
I only picked small potatoes because of the Trump angle. If I hadn't done that, I probably would have recommended Big Shot, so I'll second that one as well. Next up, we have a, a, an email from Damien, Damien Vernon, who writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. Thanks for the great podcast. I wanted to recommend a recent sports doc to cleanse your palates after the disturbing OJ doc. The Barkley Marathons, the race that eats its young. Uh, this doc is about an ultra-marathon 100-mile race that makes the racers climb 54,000 feet along its path, equivalent to climbing Mount Everest twice, and must be completed in two and a half days, day and night. The race is so grueling that only a handful of competitors have ever finished. This alone is compelling, but what makes it really fun is race organizer and designer Gary Lazarus Lake Cantrell, a chain-smoking eccentric who was inspired to create the race by James Earl Ray's uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination escape from Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Penitentiary. There are so many hilarious and weird twists and turns in this movie that had me grinning ear to ear as you watch people do the impossible for no other reason than it's impossible. And that is the Barkley Marathons, and that's a recommend recommendation from Damien. I hadn't even heard of that film or this event, but sounds really interesting. And Allison, you you noted that it actually is available on Netflix too, so people can find it there. The Barkley Marathons, and thank you for that recommendation, Damien. Okay, and one from your My List. You gave me number 11, and on my list right now, number 11 is Out One. Yes. Out One, which, you know, all I have to do is raise a child and retire, and then I probably have plenty of time to watch. all seven-plus hours of the OJ documentary, and you said you'd watch it again. Well, but I haven't actually done that. How long is Out One? 13 hours. You can do it. The description, the plot description. I, I wanted to see how Netflix described Out One. Yeah. Strands of disparate lives intertwine amid the ebb and flow of 1970s Paris, in this epic French New Wave reflection on reality, perfection, and meaning. And boy, howdy, do I bet the people on Netflix are just gobbling that one up. They're like, hmm, <laughs> I've already watched The Ridiculous Six and The Do-Over. What's next? Hmm, Out One. Oh, hey. French New Wave reflection on reality, perfection, and meaning. Click my list added. It's uh, 13 hours. It's the time it takes to binge a season of television. That's and true. I I'm not entirely convinced that it's more slow moving than House of Cards oh, uh, season two. snap. Uh-huh. Snap. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe I'll try to do you think it's okay to watch like an, an installment one at a time oh yeah i it watched is. it over multiple days okay i will say it starts off like punishingly slow okay all right yes well that's first, good to like, know two two like chunks are just really, really brutal yeah but stick with it <laughs> yes. i mean it, it's like yeah. a classic binge I mean, watch yes you get through the go. first eight or nine hours and it gets really good yeah yeah all right all right well i'll, I'll try to set aside some time maybe Probably not. Uh, Allison, are you ready to uh, count down some some films? I am ready. All right. Start with uh, three new releases. All right. My first is a cluster of films. Uh, it is the Albert Brooks filmography, at least when it comes to his work behind the camera. All seven films that Albert Brooks directed. Yes. Real Life, Modern Romance, Lost in America, Defending Your Life, Mother, The Muse, and Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World are now streaming on Netflix. If you have a little, if you, a few gaps in your Albert Brooks uh, directorial efforts, as I do, this is a great chance to catch up. Um, so those are all on Netflix now. Also new to Netflix is Terror. Uh, it was one of our listeners' choice options. Now live on Netflix. It wasn't when we, we had it up for vote. And I did want to recommend it. Directors Larry Cabral and David Sutcliffe managed to capture an ongoing FBI sting in which an informant is paid to travel somewhere 
and attempt to befriend a suspected terrorist and then get him to say or do something incriminating. And I'm really happy that OJ Made in America won and it, because I think it's terrific and was thrilled to talk about it. But I am sad we didn't get a chance to discuss this one because it is the kind of movie that you really want to talk out afterwards. So that is Terror on Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu is season two of Rick and Morty, uh, the Adult Swim show created by Justin Roiland and Community's Dan Harmon uh, that was sort of, in the beginning, based on uh, kind of Back to the Future parody, but has since built into the story of Rick, a alcoholic, amoral, genius scientist, and Morty, his uh, nephew, who he takes on really dangerous adventures uh, without much care. I watched and liked the, season, the first season of the show. Season two is on another level. It is It finds a lot of pathos in, in all of this outrageous comedy, uh, particularly the episode Autoerotic Assimilation, in which Rick gets back together with his ex, who is a hive mind named Unity, becomes this like, just like really funny and then brutally sad thing. And I, I loved it. So Rick and Morty season two on Hulu. Give it a try. All right, and how about two listener recommendations? All right, we, first up we have one from Jedediah, who, in reference to our last episode about 1996, writes, Another from 1996 that makes that list, and that you never hear discussed, is now streaming on Mubi and available for rent elsewhere, Nick Gomez's Ill Town. Among the glut of cool, slick, and mostly cheap crime pictures that arrived in the post-Tarantino 90s, fil- uh, that arrived in the post-Tarantino 90s, filmmakers like Gomez and John Dahl made low-budget, serious-minded crime dramas heavy on characters and consequence instead of pop culture references and body counts. Ill Town is about small-time drug dealers, played by Michael Rappaport and Lily Taylor, who think one of their employees is ripping them off. Where your average crime story deals with hard-boiled characters to whom the, the solution is simple, Illtown focuses on human beings deciding what they're going to do about it, carefully weighing the decision to use violence. The class includes Paul Schultz, Isaac Hayes, the invaluable Kevin Corrigan, and Oscar Isaac's blink-and-you'll-miss-it movie debut as Tony Danza's boy toy. Both Gomez and Dahl have gone on to have careers mostly directing TV, but nothing beats these early indie projects as writers and directors. Um, I have not seen Illtown and have not even heard of it, uh, so thank you for that, Jedediah. I will look that up. And secondly, we have, it's less of a recommendation than a meditation from Scott. Have you ever thought about the psychology of the my list? I have a long queue with some great movies hanging out in the middle that have been there for so long I have a hard time clicking on them. Mm. Many times I'm not even sure why they are there. <laughs> Recommendations from Netflix, Friends, or SVU. Case in point is Touch of Sin. It looked interesting, so I added it to my my list, and it sat there forever. Later it was recommended by a friend, and I bumped it to the top of my list. Still it sat, and slowly made its way down the list again. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was the cover art, or maybe it had just gotten stale on the list because I had seen it there for months on end. Who knows? After my friend recommended it to me again, I finally watched it and was blown away. It is an amazing movie about corruption in China that still baffles me how it was ever released. It looks like it is not on Netflix anymore, but it is still available for rent. Um, And then another of those cute movies I keep passing up was Dope, a fun, fresh geek comedy set in a rough L.A. neighborhood. I'm really surprised this wasn't on people's top ten lists of last year. What's on the top of my my list now? Thebe. Um, so thank you for that, Scott. We're going to say Touch of Sin is the recommendation in that. But uh, I think you've got a lot of interesting points about the My List, which I think for a lot of people becomes a place where you park uh, the place ambitions, where your ambitions. Ambitions go or, to die. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Okay. And one film chosen finally by a number from your My List. You gave me number 10. That is A War, 
which is recently added to Netflix, the 2015 Danish war drama written and directed by Tobias Lindholm, who also did A Hijacking, um, starring Blue Asbeck and Soren Maling, who are both on uh, Borgen, which Lindholm, I believe, also wrote for, which is a great show and which I, I really like and highly recommend. This film is about a Danish military company in Afghanistan, um, and then uh, they are something bad happens, and the commander basically faces war crimes charges. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the Oscar foreign language film nominees this past year, so I added it to my my list. Let's see if I watch it. <laughs> Get back to us and let us know. So, for listeners' choice options for our next episode. This is largely inspired by the death over the holiday weekend of filmmaker Michael Cimino, who uh, made The Deer Hunter, which was an Oscar winner and one of the most celebrated movies of all time, and also made Heaven's Gate, which was from 1980 and was one of the most... The contentious movies of all time. One of the most divisive movies. It's Controversial. A flop, like, it's a at the famous <laughs> flop. Look, the movie very much destroyed a film studio in a lot of ways, um, or at least crippled it to the point where it had to be acquired by another film studio. Um, and the, the, arguably, the story around the movie is more famous than the film itself. But given Michael Cimino's, uh, you know, tragic passing, we thought this might be an interesting movie to look at, to reconsider. And so we decided we're going to do that, but we're also going to do a bunch of movies that are sort of in that same category of divisive, polarizing flops, movies that did, were poorly received on their first release but have since gone on to have a a cult appreciation or perhaps even more of a more more than that, maybe have become considered sort of unappreciated classics in some in some areas. So that's option number one. It's going to be Heaven's Gate. You can rent it. There's also a fabulous Criterion Collection Blu-ray that is available. And it is directed by Michael Cimino. It is from 1980. It's a dramatization of the real-life Johnson County War from 1890 Wyoming, in which a sheriff born into wealth attempts to protect immigrant farmers from rich cattle interests. It stars Chris Christopherson, Isabel Huppert, Christopher Walken, John Hurt, and Sam Waterston. And famously, it was, you know, hugely over budget. And Chimino was constantly at war with the studio over it. And they forced him or, uh, or took the movie away from him and chopped it down after its, you know, sort of disastrous first screenings. And so for a long time, it was only available in sort of a shortened form. But, you know, in the last couple of years, it's been kind of restored. And in some people's minds, it is a masterpiece. I won't tell you what it is in our minds, although we have both seen it. But that would definitely be an interesting movie to revisit and to discuss. And in, in light of, you know, Chimino, I think he's a fascinating figure that we could discuss yeah. as well. And in some ways a tragic one, too. So that's option number one, Heaven's Gate. That is available right now for rent. Option number two is One from the Heart. This is the 1982 musical and romance written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola starring Frederick Forrest and Terry Garr and Raul Julia and Natasha Kinski. It is uh, set in Las Vegas. It's about a mechanic and a travel agent who've been married five years and uh, their marriage is kind of falling apart a bit. Uh, Franny, she wants to, to have adventures. Hank, you know, thinks things are fine. And uh, they go out for a night and meet like these ideal lovers and, and have to consider whether to stay married or to call it quits. Uh, this movie 
was hugely over budget and almost bankrupted American zoetrope or zoetrope as it was called at the time. And um, it was, it's mostly shot on sound stages deliberately to give it this very stylized look with music from Crystal Gale and Tom Waits. Uh, and it, for years afterwards, uh, Coppola set, was set on a path of making these more commercial films because uh, including Godfather three uh, to pay off his debts that he ran up for this movie it did not perform well at the time, though it's definitely got a, a small but passionate fandom, including me. I like this one. Uh, you have not seen it, Matt. I have not seen it. So this is one that I actually would be very interested in watching for the first time. I've heard yeah. you talk about it. And Yeah, I talked about it, I think, on maybe film spot, or SVU number 12. It was a, one of the early episodes. Long time ago. When we were talking about uh, the 70s and that kind of era in filmmaking. Um, though this is 1982. But... Uh, that is uh, streaming on Amazon Prime and also available for rent. That is one from the heart. All right. Our third option, another one. I've never, I've actually never seen this I one. I haven't either. This one maybe is, well, they're all really appropriate for the topic, but this one seems really appropriate in terms of a movie that was just hugely kind of dismissed at the time and has only steadily increased in sort of its critical standing. Probably, you would you would agree, right? That of the three, this is probably the, now considered probably the best of the three films. Would you agree with that or no? I Yeah, I would agree. It's always hard to tell because the people who are fans of these films are very passionate. That's you know? fair. And so, like, it's hard to Maybe judge my perspective is, is skewed, but that's how I perceive it anyway. The film is Sorcerer, and it is available for rent, directed by William Friedkin, this is from 1977. It is a loose remake, although I don't think Friedkin likes to refer to it this way, as a, a remake of The Wages of Fear, which I have seen and is a masterpiece. That's a great film. And so he sort of loosely remade the movie with Roy Scheider. The, the plot description is, Four unfortunate men from different parts of the globe agree to risk their lives transporting gallons of nitroglycerin across dangerous South American jungle. And the, and the premise is basically the same, but I, I don't think Friedkin considers it a remake. Um, this is another sort of, kind of like Heaven's Gate was a, a very ambitious movie that perhaps did or did not get away from its director. Maybe his ambitions exceeded his reach. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. That's something we can discuss. But the, the movie, by the time it came out, I think Friedkin, of course, was writing very high after um, The Exorcist and The French Connection that perhaps people, maybe, rightly or wrongly, maybe some critics were kind of looking forward to taking him down a peg. I don't know. That's something we can discuss. And, of course, it came out in 1977, which is the, the, the time of Star Wars, so it was probably just a bit out of the zeitgeist. Uh, maybe, maybe it was really a movie meant for a few years earlier or perhaps a few years later because in time it began to accrue a better reputation. And now, uh, now that it's come out recently on like a spectacular Blu-ray, supposedly, it seems to have um, found more appreciation. So that's option number three, Sorcerer. It is available for rent. All right, which of these reassessed movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting vi Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can always enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 11th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter, at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, July 19th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. 
The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions, both from ourselves and from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. 